Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Dr. Evan Friss, Associate Professor of History at James Madison University in Harrisburg, Virginia, in the U.S. We're here to talk to him about the cycling city, bicycles in urban America in the 1890s. This book was originally released in 2015 by the University of Chicago Press, and we're chatting on the occasion of its paperback release in January. Woohoo! Hello, Evan, and congratulations on the paper run. Thanks, Yana. That's great news. Someone's reading your book. <laughs> I guess so. It's always um, weird to think about that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's certainly not guaranteed with academic books that you're going to get the the readership it deserves, but you are. So uh, how's it going? Virginia's getting some uncharacteristic winter, yeah? It's icy at the moment and, and cold and a bit um, sullen. <laughs> sullen. And yeah, I can imagine that will suit your mood. So um, thinking about maybe popping down to Cancun for a quick getaway? Not at the moment. Seems to be popular. I don't know. Okay. So let's, let's talk about this book instead of my lame humor, attempts at humor. Um So our first job is to situate the current work in your academic and intellectual landscape. And that seems pretty clear here. You write and talk for an academic and lay audience about bikes. Um, So, but why bikes? How did you come to write this book? Well, I was always interested in cities and urban planning and and streets and mobility in in a much broader sense. And while in graduate school, in New York, I was sort of always really interested in how people move around, including myself and the decisions to go on this street or that and um, how you're going to kind of snake across the, the grid of Manhattan and the other kind of just micro decisions that people make when they get off the subway, whether or not to take the stairs or the escalator and where those things are placed and, and thinking about the kind of political and public decisions that constrain our choices and uh, incentivize certain modes of moving and and certain ways of moving. So it was a combination of a kind of broader interest in, in cities and how they look and how they can be shaped, um, how they look and how they can be shaped to encourage certain behaviors in my own experience living in New York. And I um, adopted a bicycle, an old early 1980s beat up yellow bike that I would pedal around and enjoyed using it as uh, a means of transportation. And, and of course, naturally wondered, as many people do, why there weren't more people riding bicycles and why there weren't more bike lanes and um, why... American cities, even those that are very dense and in which most people commute very short distances, bicycles weren't more widely used as they were in uh, where you are in Amsterdam. Right. That um, yeah uh, makes perfect sense, um, and it's it's a good question. So that that makes so we've got you and your personal interests. Did you see a hole in the history historiography that you needed to fill as well? Well, there weren't 
many people writing about cycling, there was a kind of subculture of or a group of <clears throat> historians. <clears throat> excuse me. There was um there was a group of people who were really interested in the history of bicycles and mostly they're not academics and they have a, a yearly conference and they tend to be really interested in the nitty gritty of bicycle technology and the evolution of the machine. And many of them have done really great work charting the, the history of this object itself. But there wasn't a lot about the kind of practice of cycling and how it affects or how cyclists affected the urban landscape uh, and the ways in which cities had had come to encourage or discourage cycling. And some of that, I think, is also just a, a fact of, you know, we tend to write about what we're surrounded by. So again, in a, in a world, in a country that isn't very uh, devoted to cycling, maybe there was just less of an, an academic interest. So it wasn't so much that there were particular historiographical arguments um, or, or things to to try and counter. It was more of a an undeveloped, underdeveloped story that needed to be, I thought, um, expanded, and one that I thought might have some interest beyond academics, which always appealed to me, even uh, while writing a, a dissertation. Um, so. That was the kind of um, impetus. And I didn't know what else to write about. <laughs> I had written, written a seminar paper in graduate school about this topic. And my advisor liked it. And when I was um, sort of not knowing how to move forward and trying to dream up all sorts of very, what I thought were revolutionary ideas for the dissertation and couldn't find anything he actually suggested going to this topic and I, I hesitated for a while, but in the end, I think it was a good choice. Yeah. Good, good advisor there. Well, I mean, and it's, it's not as if people don't care, as you just said, you know, there's this group of people and you've been published in a lot of places that aren't, uh, that are, that have, have a broader audience, you know, that aren't particularly strictly academic. Um, it's just not an it's not a topic that has been taught to ha- handled by academics that much. I've read a few things, but it's not the uh, it's it's a story that needs to be told. So let's just uh, get this out there for our audience. Um, what what's your argument? What are you telling us with this book? Well, I examine this relatively short period of time, especially by historians' standards, at the end of the nineteenth century in which I argue that cyclists actually managed to, to shape American cities in, in pretty significant ways. And by looking at this kind of brief period and the rise and fall, um, we can learn about the political choices that are made in terms of the urban landscape. We can learn about transportation and mobility, but we can also see a kind of path not taken. So the fact that American cities in the 20th century become so dominated by automobiles, especially compared to, again, similar cities elsewhere around the world, and what originally drew me to the subject 
wasn't really faded as, as all histories really teach us. There was nothing inevitable about it. Um, but there was this real moment in which the bicycle could have been at the center of American cities. And it was briefly where people started actually dreaming up cities based around this relatively new form of transportation that they assumed would become democratized and, and readily affordable and would open up all sorts of new opportunities. Sure. You know, um, the, there is, we have this tendency, humans, I mean, have this tendency to think that, like, think very teleologically, that like, how we, the, the, the way we live is the way we kind of had to, it just was like, that's how it happened. And instead of reflecting on the, you know, the idea that the status quo is a result of conscious decisions often. Um, and certainly when you're talking about something like urban planning, um, and you really lay that out really very well. It's a thing I enjoyed, and I think you do great, do very well here. Um, so tell me, let's talk about your craft for a little bit. Like, why did you choose your the cities you choose? So we, you talk about New York, Chicago, um, San Francisco a lot. Like, what, what, what? And then you know, every now and then something odd like Oshkosh, Wisconsin shows up. Hello, Oshkosh. Uh, so how did you make those decisions? Yeah, well, I'll say as as historians who have written books like this know, it's it's difficult when you're trying to write something that's in this case pan American. So I could have written a case study about New York or, or some other city, but in trying to suggest that there was this American phenomenon, right? There's a delicate balance of of trying to be representative, but also having deep and rich enough sources and stories to make the narrative compelling. So I, I tended to focus on larger cities. And this was a, a consequence of the fact that bicycles were more popular in these places, not just because there were more people, but even on a per capita basis. And that was because the density offers more possibilities. And again, as I mentioned, in places where people are commuting short distances, that affords a real kind of practical possibility of the bicycle. And so I wanted some kind of geographic balance and so wanted to make sure Chicago and San Francisco were highlighted in addition to the East Coast cities. And some of it was based on, you know, sources and where I can find material. Um, and, and the other dirty little secret that, you know, historians don't want to tell anybody <laughs> is, but we're, we're limited by all sorts of practical considerations as well. Um, when you, I started this project in graduate school, I just didn't have the funding to go to so many cities and, and had to be relatively selective and, you know, had a family member who lives in, in Berkeley and can stay there and San Francisco seemed like a good choice. And um, so be it. And so, yeah, there are, that is a thing that comes up a lot when I'm talking to historians on this podcast. It's like, why did you pick this? Well, also because I could afford it is really common, especially for dissertations, yeah. first books. You know, why did I, well, I write about Venice because they have archives, duh. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So that's, that leads me directly to where I want to go next, which is to talk about your sources. You have a pretty good variety. Well, tell us what you used. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I kind of love and hate, I guess, in certain ways, but mostly love doing research and particularly, you know, finding odd and um, unusual and maybe overlooked kinds of sources. So I used a mix, um, a lot of government records, so municipal reports, because I'm interested in how cities are responding uh, to the cyclists, so records of city councils and things like that. Um, but I think some of the more interesting sources were much more personal. So there's an example of what was called a wheeling diary, which wasn't so atypical at the time. But this young man uh, living in the 1890s in New York kept a diary in which he documented every ride that he took over the span of a few years. And he was a, a serious cyclist who rode to work, who rode uh, to, to meet girls, who rode for recreation. And so it was a really rich resource and was a lot of fun to, to uncover and to think about his kind of daily practice of, of cycling. Another um, interesting source was a scrapbook in which um, a woman had been assembling all these clippings. And I'm pretty sure she paid someone a clipping service to send her basically anything written about bicycles anywhere. And this may be how Oshkosh and other places appear in the book because all sorts of newspapers that haven't been digitized, I was able to find kind of one-off articles about cycling in these various places. And this woman ended up collecting what is now uh, 15 or 20, something like that, bound huge volumes of clippings, including her own um, material. And, and I later learned who it was. It didn't have her, her name on it, but she was working on her own book about bicycling for women and what it would mean. And so this was her own research that I was then using for my own research. Wow, I would love to run into a source like that where you just have like a clippings. Where you just have all these clippings. That's magical. Um, thanks, lady. Um, <laughs> I mean, and there's other things as well. You can use, you know, there's a lot about the built environment, and there's a lot of civic documents and whatnot that show up. Those are less interesting. Yeah, maps are fun. Everybody loves maps, you know, and and the number of cycling maps produced in this period is really terrific and they're sometimes gorgeous to look at but always kind of just fascinating to see where bike lanes were laid and these bike maps often made by um, big companies like Ram McNally but also often produced by local cycling clubs so at all different kinds of scale and quality that reveal a lot about the cycling landscape at the time and the degree to which these activities were popular. So getting into some of the subject material. So one thing I was really shocked by how quickly the bicycle developed uh, technologically and design wise, like basically every American or European, I have an image of the penny farthing in my mind, right? Um, But I guess I thought that there would, that was around for a while. And I certainly expected that there would be uh, a lot more kind of dumb cycle-like machines in between that and this bike that basically looks like my Dutch Oma feats. Uh, but that's not the case. Like technology moved pretty quickly, yeah? 
Yeah, there were a lot of weird, maybe you would call them dumb contraptions along the way and bizarre ideas about bicycles that could, you know, go in the water and fly and all kinds of, you know, absurd possibilities and that bicycles would be uh, used for all, all kinds of imaginative purposes. But it certainly evolved and fits and starts throughout the 19th century. And, you know, the very first, um, yes, it certainly evolved throughout the 19th century in fits and starts. And what is the first bicycle is a, is a sort of classic question among these uh, bicycle historians, however small of a group they are and what defines the bicycle. But over time, they develop pedals and gears. And yes, they're constantly playing with the size of the bicycle. And um, everyone who is has seen one of those high wheelers rightly wonders what people were thinking um, riding them. And they were terribly dangerous, but they could get a great deal of speed with that really large uh, front wheel. But what I think is even more interesting is the degree to which the bicycle in the 1890s, when it becomes very popular in the period that I write about in the book, as you point out, that bicycle looks very similar to the one that we know today. Uh, and even in the 21st century, um, when I was living in New York and riding around, a lot of people were purposefully riding sort of stripped down bicycles that looked eerily similar to the kinds you would see in the 1890s. And of course, there are people who have very fancy bicycles and many, many gears and made of all kinds of composite frames. Um, But for the most part, most people could hop on a bike made in the 1890s and, and get around just fine. And it wouldn't feel like an alien experience. Which if you compare, like if you put someone behind a car, right, or like the kind of motorized contraptions from even 50 years later, and a lot of people wouldn't be able to drive them at all. Exactly. Um, Yeah, so that's a very interesting. um, Do you think, um, how much of that is just like an attempt to find a demand, an attempt to meet the demand, like designing bikes? Like what's the relationship? There's my question. What's the relationship between the development of this technology, the development of a bicycle that basically anyone can use and the popularity of the bicycle? Yeah, there's the, the sort of modern bicycle was born by, from manufacturers who realized that all of the predecessors were capturing a relatively small, narrow slice of the market. And so the name for these bicycles, when they first emerged, um, they were called safety bicycles. And they were called safety bicycles to highlight and to contrast them with the high wheel bicycles, the penny farthings that you mentioned, that were deemed unbelievably dangerous and and understandably so. And those high wheel bicycles were basically recreational devices for young, athletic, rich men. And so some wise uh, and um, thirsty capitalists arrived and, and said to themselves, well, maybe there can be a much bigger market for these things. We have to 
come up with a new design, of course, but also rebrand them in a way that can attract a much larger demographic beyond just men, beyond just young people, beyond just those looking for athletics and exercise and these kind of circus acts, but to think about the many different tools uh, and the many different ways in which bicycles can be used. And the manufacturers, not surprisingly, become the biggest supporters of, of bicycles and often lean into these urban debates and politics where they back certain candidates who promise to build bike lanes, um, for example, uh, and they back cycling clubs and all sorts of other, other measures to increase the popularity of cycling. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about that, about the way that these first bike manufacturers manufacture a demand for the bike as well. So they lean heavily into advertising. And I say somewhere in the book, I can't remember the statistic, but bike ads are among or one of the two first or second leading advertisers in periodicals in the 1890s. So they flood the market with advertisements. And many of the advertisements really rely on an emotional appeal uh, in and kind of prefigure a much more modern form of advertising. Many of them are, are splashy kind of colorful posters. Uh, they help back a number of new magazines, journals, and newspapers that are cycling specific. So they're Again, in this relatively short period, there end up being scores and scores of bike-centric news outlets and, and places for people to read about bikes. And those often have the backing of the big manufacturers. And they, they try and convince, as I mentioned, other kinds of people to become cyclists. And so, you know, one example, the biggest manufacturer was um, called Pope. And this, this guy from Connecticut uh, who started the Pope Manufacturing Company. And they would have contests uh, sending out dolls to younger women uh, and asking them to sort of weigh in about what the female cyclist should wear as a way to engage these customers, as a way to also learn about the market, but also as a way to, to have them think of themselves as cyclists one day. All right. Um, and so this, we're trying to, they're, they're trying to broaden the appeal of the cycle. Um, and you open your second chapter by quoting some late 19th century media that would indicate that they've done it. So, uh, and I, I'm going to read out some of these quotes, right? The bicycle is the most democratic of machines, old and young, rich and poor men and women, boys and girls all caught the bicycle fever. The bank president and the clerk, the society leader and the shop girl ride side by side. And then, you know, more directly saying the same thing. As a social leveler, the bicycle has been unequaled. And finally, its use is confined to no class. So we're not like not even messing with metaphor there. We're like straight to it. Um, so obviously, this isn't quite the story. But before you problematize the story for me, can you tell me ways it is true? How is cycling available to the masses? Well, there was really no other form of private transportation that was available to even what we might call the middle class today. So, of course, there were forms of public transportation, streetcars and such um, developing and, you know, cabs driven by horses. 
but very few people owned their own horse. And so mm-hmm. if you were living in a city, um, you were dependent on walking or taking some form of public transportation. And, and the bicycle really was the first tool to enable independent private mobility by many of the people who became cyclists in the, the millions of Americans who newly became cyclists in the 1890s. So for many of them, it really did feel revolutionary and democratizing. And, and they all assumed that the bicycle would become the province of everybody in due time. And there was a very robust secondhand market where people were attracted to the latest models of bicycles and so would buy one each year and and sell their old one back to the bike shop or uh, on the sort of secondhand market. So there was uh, opportunities to buy bicycles, um, even for those who couldn't afford the retail price. Um, But now to problematize it as you... uh, (laughs) as you suggested, bicycles were still on the whole very expensive. You know, a new bicycle at the time would often cost around a hundred dollars, you know, in 1890s money, which is many, many, many times more expensive than that. And, and much more expensive than a typical bicycle would be today, uh, relatively. So this was certainly a, a practice and activity most engaged in initially by elites and the wealthy, and that eventually became accessible to the middle class or what we might think of as that. But the real, of course, urban poor and much of the working class would never become cyclists. But they had hoped and imagined, and as much as the cycling city is a real phenomenon that is that cities begin to be remade. It's also an imagined phenomenon that it's a period in time where a lot of Americans are dreaming up a new kind of city centered around the bicycle. And I don't think it's all hyperbolic and exaggerated. Some of the language in the press, of course, is. But I think um, a lot of people really believed and imagined and forecasted a new kind of American city and, and hoped that the bicycle was a remedy to many of the urban ills that they were facing at the time. Mm. Um, yeah. Let's talk about black cyclists. Um, there are black cyclists uh, and many. Yeah. Yes, there are um, not as many as, as white cyclists, which is, unfortunately still the case even today um but i there i do in the book try to understand you know the ways in which uh, cyclists are identified i mean i mean like who is a cyclist and who isn't a cyclist a, a question questions that still remain very relevant today and we might know you know technically that seems like an easy answer but a lot of being a cyclist in the 1890s was really a social experience. So as much as it was uh, a way to get exercise or a way to get from A to B, it was also a means by which you can join a cycling club 
um, or, you know, go out on a ride with friends or date people. Um, so I was, a, I was interested in, in that lens as well. And famously in the 1890s, um, black cyclists are barred from the, the national, what's called League of American Wheelmen, the sort of um, biggest national cycling club lobbying group and, and uh, organization that held races and sponsored competitions and, and such. And so there's this flashpoint at which this, this national organization bars cyclists from being members and per- participating in these races. And all sorts of debates break out in various cities about whether or not that should stand. Uh, and of course, as you might expect, there were a fair number of regional uh, differences here. Um, and there were people, um, Black Americans included, as well as uh, some immigrant groups who articulated the bicycle as a potential emancipatory tool or who saw in it, as, as some women did, um, an empowering device, uh, a device that might in some, you know, maybe it was more of a, of a metaphor than literal, but not always, um, a way to experience new places, a way to um, possibly achieve some semblance of liberation. It felt like a liberating experience for a lot of people and is described that way. Uh, described in those terms quite often. Yeah. One of the themes that comes through uh, with the marketing, with the images you've got in the, that you, you uh, bring into the book is that you have this kind of image of a cyclist um, and it's their young, carefree, well-dressed, the, you know, wealthy-ish. Um, they, can, they have leisure time to cycle out for a picnic and look good while doing it. Um, and there's a, a lot of people who might need cycling for transportation who aren't fitting in that mold. So that's you know, the idea of a cyclist. Yes. In, um, in, in modern terms, there's some, you know, bike advocates who describe the cycling community as an oxymoronic term. That is that there are so many different kinds of people cycling for so many different reasons uh, that it becomes very hard to to generalize um, the group, but there's this kind of overriding image that predominates and shapes the way in which advocacy and, and other kind of practices take part. And in the 1890s, that was certainly, you know, the predominant image was, as you as you say, a fashionable, you know, young urbanite. Um, who's who's enjoying this sort of opportunity to leisurely pedal through one of the nicely manicured parks or go on a picnic um, toting their toting their basket uh, you know on their bicycle that kind of thing sure with a great sense of independence mm-hmm. and you know radical autonomy uh, which is the Marius mentioned the marketing for women um, so you know what are 
bicycles for? Are they transportation? Are they a recreational vehicle? Uh, This is certainly a question the U.S. at least still struggles with. Um, And in the late 19th century, it seems to be a question that people are struggling with as well. It is a question, uh, an enduring question. And in some ways, it gets more complicated after the book, I mean, after the period that the book covers, because in the 1890s, the big divide is really between recreational and practical, or uh, initially between men and women. That is, is this a kind of masculine activity that will be threatened by women becoming cyclists, which some people argue that it, that, that happens uh, at the time, and they try and prevent women from riding. Um, but for the most part, most people in the 19th century are riding for recreation. And even within recreation, you know, there are many different ways in which they're doing that. Some people are engaging in very long distance rides and bike touring and seeing the countryside. Many other people are, are merely just riding around Central Park or some loop in their city. Other people are using it to you know, go to the beach or the mountains somewhere that's maybe in between the long distance ride and looping around uh, a park. And some people are doing it very explicitly for health reasons. They think it's good for them. They want to do uh, have exercise. Other people doing it because it's fun um, and they just enjoy it. But one of the interesting things in the 1890s is that relatively very few children are riding. They they become cyclists later. And so that means, A, we have this interesting period where adults haven't grown up learning how to ride a bicycle, which is why there are all these bicycle schools catering um, to adults who are trying to learn how to ride, which isn't uh, always easy, especially on those high wheelers that precede the safety bicycle. Uh, It often doesn't go well. But Uh, they make up a very small percentage, the children do, of the riders. So one of the things that happens after, of course, and particularly in America, is that the bicycle becomes identified largely as a toy for children. And that becomes another added dimension to the cycling community that makes it even more difficult to categorize this device. Uh, and in some ways might, you know, infantilize the kind of image of the cyclist and make it difficult for cyclists to be treated um, or taken more seriously. But in the 1890s, that wasn't the case. And I think was part of the reason that uh, cyclists had so much success, albeit briefly, in reconfiguring their cities. Sure. Um yeah, there's, I mean, this, the idea that there's now something like cycling is for kids is something that you see in the U.S. that was not the case, certainly over here. I mean, cycling is for kids, but also it's for, for your whole life. Um, let's talk about um, your chapters three and four, Rules of the Road and Good Roads, document some early forays into still raging battles about building infrastructure that allows for the inclusion of multimodal transportation using modern language there. Um, and I saw a lot of continuity there. Uh, there are a couple of major fights about getting cycles on the streets and making those streets safe for cycles. Uh, but I, one of the points you that is becomes really clear is you can still see the work of these late 19th century cid- cyclists in modern American cities. How does that happen? 
in many ways, the, you know, the progress in any of these boom periods in which cycling takes off um, disappears often and, and sometimes quickly and sometimes permanently. But there are also a number of interesting interest instances in which the, the footprints of these cycling moments endure. And I think they're, they're really interesting. And many of those footprints are often more in terms of the rules of the road than they are in terms of the infrastructure. So that is, cyclists were able to lobby city governments to pass traffic laws that granted bicycles the right to the road, that dictated how bicycles and other motor traffic uh, which had just been an emerging form of transportation and, of course, would eventually dominate, move through the streets. And sometimes these laws that gave cyclists and endowed them with actually uh, legitimacy uh, that helped make the bicycle seen as, at least according to law, a legitimate vehicle that was classed in the same way as an automobile or a streetcar and had a right to the road. These things would endure and come up over and over again throughout um, the 20th century, so much long after, and would be used to try and fight all sorts of subsequent laws or reshapings of the street. And and sometimes they were useful. And in fact, uh, in many cases, are still on the books, even if, if not widely known. The infrastructure pieces, those were typically more ephemeral, but there were some cases in which bike paths built in the 19th century uh, survived and and remained. Um, But for the most part, most of that infrastructure disappeared, which makes it all the more difficult for another kind of period or bike boom to emerge because in many ways, the uh, American cities and advocates are often starting from near scratch. Mm-hmm. And the kind of booms that we have are often begun despite infrastructure, not because of it. But there is this idea about th- th- that you can have a debate about who cities are for. For whom are you developing your cities? Is it cars? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... One of the interesting things about studying the 1890s is is it was really fascinating to see the degree to which these cyclists were able to actually wield political power at the local level, much more so than the state and the federal, although they, they lobbied state and federal governments for various protections as well. But especially within the city uh, government, um, cyclists were able to to really flex their muscle uh, and, and to ensure that candidates um, respected the so-called bicyclist vote uh, and to issue in substantial change. Um, when city governments balked at paving streets, for example, because it was too expensive to asphalt, they would often agree to pave three foot wide asphalt strip running along the gutter that was essentially a bike lane, but was really just paving a road for bicyclists and and leaving the rest of the road unpaved. (laughs) That's so, that's such a hard to imagine now, but yes. Yeah. (laughs) No, let's, let's take care of the cyclists first. 
Um, uh, yeah, there, I, this was another thing I think our readers will find very interesting when they read, or our listeners will find interesting when they become your readers, is how much, um, like, how much argument there is about bike paths, which seems like such a no-brainer, right? That that there's that just seems very easy. Let's make roads for bikes, um, especially if everyone's riding them. But there's some there's some major arguments and some like very people who are very angry about the development of bike paths. And one of the most interesting aspects of that debate is the degree to which it fractures the cyclists themselves. So there are, of course, you know, uh, people who are driving uh, the horses who aren't happy about the cyclists and the streetcar operators who you might be able to guess aren't terribly happy about devoting space to the cyclists. But the cyclists themselves in the 1890s, and, and, and this persists for a while as well, aren't sure about where they belong on the street. And, and some of their opposition to bike paths are that separate is unequal. That is, if you create a separate space for the cyclists, they will inevitably be delegitimized and that they are a vehicle and that they had argued and lobbied for that status and had won and had been granted in law the right to the road that they shouldn't give up that right to exclusively ride on a bike path that is just off the road, or even if it was a portion of the road. And so many of the cyclists said, well, you can build all the bike paths you want, but you can't keep us also off the main road. Uh, and, and some of these new bike paths came with the explicit mandate that cyclists were only allowed on the bike path when there was a path available. And these became very heated discussions um, and, and, and splintered to some degree um, these fledgling bike advocacy groups. Yeah. Um, back to that ongoing, this ongoing discussion through the book about like what, what the cycle is for and what the cycle means in this period, kind of in the imagination um, so, you know, what happened? No spoilers here. Everybody knows what happened. Why are there, there are so few normal humans whizzing through America's urban spaces on bicycles today. Why did Americans stop riding? It's easier to answer that question in terms of the, the reasons that we can rule out. So this is another thing historians don't like to admit is sometimes things don't quite always add up or make so much sense. And this is a question I get the most, and I should be have a very rehearsed answer to it. <laughs> but when I'm when I was doing the research for it, it was it was difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the reason why. But I can I can tell you this. It wasn't because of the automobile, which is the usually the prime suspect here. Sure. Yeah. And that that answer is e- relatively easy to rule out because automobiles don't become popular for another 20 years plus in the United States. Very, very few people are, are riding in cars. They don't put their bicycle away or sell them in order to buy a car or get in the back seat of the car. Um, but to problematize that, as historians <laughs> like to do, there was some of the kind of excitement and innovation of the bicycle that may have been sapped by the sort of looming 
presence of the automobile. Even if people weren't getting in them and buying in them, there was still this sense that maybe something would supplant the bicycle as this kind of technological marvel. So maybe it played a small role in terms of that. Uh, another reason why it is not is, you know, people like to say American cities are hilly or they're, the weather's bad. Um, and these are people mostly haven't been to Europe or Asia or other places around the world where people are biking all the time. Uh, and of course, you know, New York isn't all that different than Amsterdam. I mean, in terms of its geography or climate or anything. And in the 1890s, bicycles were incredibly popular in San Francisco, the most you know, famous hilly city in America. Um, so those reasons aren't it either. Um, and from my research and from what I can, I can tell, I think it was mostly a social consequence. That is, bicycles became incredibly popular to ride, incredibly fashionable. It was this kind of cultural symbol. And as bicycle prices declined throughout the 1890s and more and more people engaged in the practice, a lot of those who first sort of set off the cycling trend um, found it less exciting and, and stopped paying their membership dues at the bike club uh, and gradually, people just stopped riding for fun, uh, for recreation. The cycling clubs disappeared, and, and then the infrastructure improvements disappeared. And so the kind of committed riders, the people who maintained the practice of cycling, tended to be those who found it a useful practical tool to commute. Uh, and, and they endured somewhat. But most of the people uh, who cycled for social recreational reasons, which was always the predominant group, um, they just stopped. And, and very suddenly, I mean, you, I have some charts in the book, that, you know, um, chronicle bike sales and membership and bike clubs. I mean, it just completely falls off uh, over the course of um, a couple of years at the end of the 1890s. So it is an incredible popular, hugely popular fad, and then it's not popular anymore. Um, yeah, I don't I, I for some reason I bristle at the word fad. I'm not sure yeah, what okay. yeah, um because it 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 does come back, you know, in other periods and people are still riding them today, you know, in a way that I don't know, beanie babies or hula hoops or whatever, you know, there is this kind of what people in the 1890s America were imagining doesn't prove to be sort of impossible because it becomes realized in other places around the world. And, and to some degree is remains part of what many urbanists and urban planners are calling for today. Uh, so it has, you know, the bicycle has remained a, a fixture of America in a way. Um, it's just been, it's been subdued and it's had these periods of, of booms and busts. But in that way, it's different from what I think we think of when we usually think of a fad, something that just comes and goes and, and isn't really meaningful after. Well, and it remains, it remains meaningful, certainly. Um, and, America's cities are 
getting uh, are definitely there is a rise in popularity in cycling in America's cities for certain. Um, yes, and they're they're riding the same thing that's been around for you know over hundred thirty years. <laughs> yeah, make. which you you put in your epilogue um, that this this drop off isn't the end of the story. And yeah, so in in the twenty first century, we've seen uh, a kind of bicycle renaissance begun in the name of sustainability and as a, a tool to fight climate change and global warming, um, but also as a, a tool to make cities more livable. So aside from just preventing flooding and, and such, there's also been in this kind of urban uh, moment of the 21st century, right? People who are getting driver's licenses later in life or never, more people moving to cities and wanting the kind of convenience of work and leisure close and walkable and public transit. And this is, of course, all before the pandemic. There was this uh, movement and bike share programs, all sorts of innovative street designs to try and catch up to other cities around the world. And then the pandemic itself has um, made some re cities rethink and recast their own streets to, to open them up for, you know, outdoor dining, to pedestrianize them as motor traffic declined, and to think about how better to use this space, this tremendous piece of real estate in cities that have uh, huge populations and, and is um, having them dedicated to cars, you know, the best use not just in terms of environmental damage, but also in terms of creating a livable social city. And, and many advocates are, are seeing a role for the bicycle in, the, in a more idealized city of the future. So bicycles are in one way this kind of relic and antique device, and we can picture these high wheelers and people with you know mustaches riding them in their hats and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But it's also a device that we think of as futuristic and in any kind of, you know, rendering of uh, a future city in which we think about creating a more harmonious, livable, sustainable, ideal city drawn by architects or planners. You'll see the bicycle there as, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. as the symbol. And, and this important symbol of you yeah, have like new technology as well. That's interesting. Um, uh, hmm. I mean, I could I could ask you about the next hundred years or so because in the interval between the original publication of the Cycling City and today, you've published another book on bicycles: a two hundred year history of cycling in New York City from Columbia University Press in twenty nineteen. Uh, congratulations on that as well. It's waiting for me on my Kindle. Thank you. Um, but I, I'm not going to ask you about that. You know, it's a different book. Uh, but so that's done. That, that's in the bag. What is next? What are you working on now? Well, you know, initially I was hesitant to write about bicycles to begin with, as I mentioned. And then I wrote one book. And then I wrote two books, <laughs> which is a story of, of how one's career can be shaped by what one chooses to write their first book about. Um, mm -hmm. But I think two books, and I also curated a museum exhibition, which was related to the last book at the Museum of the City in New York. I think that's enough about bicycles. So 
to, um, you know, we haven't had any terrible puns during this interview. So I'll, I'll, I'll start on that <laughs> to hop off the saddle here, you know, to change gears. <laughs> it's, it's time to, um, nice. to chart a different path and, um, no more bicycles. So I'm currently working on a book. I, I still think of it as kind of an urban subject, but it's very different. Um, but I'm working on a book about the history of American bookshops and, and mm-hmm. as important institutions that also have had their own rise and, and fall. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The rise and fall of the American bookshop. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that. I just read The Haunted Bookshop. Yeah, Christopher Morley. Yeah, Yeah, I just read that um, last month or something. Have you read uh, Parnassus on Wheels? I have not. Okay, that's the the sort of predecessor to that book, also by Christopher Morley, and also about a bookshop and a really fun little novella that I would recommend. Oh, I will give that a look. Well, and I just, I love the amount he talks about bookshops and what a bookshop ought to be, and what a, the responsibilities of an ethical bookseller. Yes. And he, he bases this on a couple of real life bookstores. He was something of a, a, a bookstore, I don't know, aficionado who would hang out at New York bookstores and, and was a, a sort of, you know, figure <laughs> to be found in these spaces. So He's, you know, these are fictional works, but he is a kind of historical character in in the book I'm working on. Mm, Excellent. I am looking forward to reading that. Cool. Oh, uh, thank you so much. What a great time we've had. I've had it taken enough of your time, so I'll let you go. But I am so grateful that we got to chat today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excellent. We'll talk about bookshops for sure. Let me know when you get that done. (laughs) Okay, no pressure. (laughs) No pressure. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye.